You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeff Vandermeer's forthcoming anthology, co-edited with his wife Anne, is The Time Traveler's Almanac. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. This is another big book you put together with your wife, and you two guys have been working as an editorial team. So I'd like you to talk about two aspects. One, working as a team, because you're also doing a lot of work as a writer. Right. And I'd like you to just talk about kind of the business of getting all these manuscripts, putting them together, that, that whole thing. It's got to be easier said than done. Yeah, uh, on this particular book, uh, my wife did probably 90% of the work, and I kind of like picked my spots. Like I did the introduction and and uh, recommended individual stories, like there's a Cordwainer Smith story that I really love, and and some other stories like that. But uh, she did most of the compiling. But you know, since we did the weird, we have kind of a process in place, which is to say that we have enough mental scarring that <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that at least we know what's going to happen <laughs> and, and, and can work through it. But, but seriously, uh, doing a large anthology, if that's all we're doing for a year or so, is easier than doing like two or three anthologies that are shorter. It, it turns out it's actually easier because you're not having to like do, all the, do promotion through three books. You're not having to do certain things three times that you have to do if you're doing different anthologies. So I think our mo- model is going to be these thick anthologies, also because it's hard to overlook them. They seem to make an impact when they hit, and they also resonate as physical objects, which is something that's important to us, to keep doing books that people want to pick up as books. But the actual process of putting together, uh, I think this one was probably easier uh, just because we were dealing with fewer degraded estates, as I would call them, you know, estates where you don't even know who owns the rights, or uh, there was one estate on the weird where uh, the person in question who owned the rights was in a coma, and we were told that she could either revive or die. And in one of those cases, they would be able to grant us the rights, but as long as she was in a coma, they didn't know what to do. So you, you create situations like that, you wind up negotiating rights for, uh, you know, e-books, e-book rights with monks on an island, off of Spain, who who own the rights to some obscure writer that you really love and want in, in the book. Uh, less of that with the Time Traveler's Almanac. <laughs> uh, conspiracy theorists about the internet that you have to give a 101 guide to. No, we're not pirating your book. We're, <laughs> we're just trying to put it in an anthology and pay you. Uh, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> that aspect of it. Um, there's the people who are whose relatives are trying to hold on to the rights because they think it's like stocks, that they're obscure writer you know, uh, husband or whatever uh, who's passed away uh, and is only known for short stories, that their, their stock will rise if they just hold on to the rights and don't give them to anybody for 40 years, which is actually a good way to make sure someone stays obscure. Um, then there's the question of, uh, look, the Time Traveler's Almanac, I know that Anne looked very closely at stuff from all over the world and also stuff from outside of, like, strictly science fiction. Because what you do first when you're doing a big anthology like this is you look at what's gone before and say, well, what did they do that I really like and that I can, you know, with a tip of the hat, emulate? And what did they not do that maybe they, we could do, especially since we have a larger book? And so what we found with time travel is that mostly, most uh, anthologies of reprint uh, time travel stories were uh, science fiction only. And you'd see the same names over and over again. And they've been fairly conservative. So there's there's tons of stuff in this book that has never been collected before. That's an interesting slant because mm-hmm. there's obviously quite a bit of 
literary fiction and, and horror fiction and mm-hmm. supernatural fiction that yeah. also deals explicitly with time travel in a in an unusual and what manner that yeah. I think would give a lot of dimension to that concept. Yeah, and 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 so having the length to be able to do that is another reason why we do these these books is to be able to put different writers in conversation with one another and it doesn't always have to be like uh time travel the 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 nuts and bolts of it unless you really are a purist about the science it's more about the effects of it the the emotional mm-hmm. resonance with the characters and so and didn't and I didn't really care so much about you know they they couldn't be implausible but it couldn't we didn't have to you know we didn't think about well we're only going to include hard science fiction stories that try to make a plausible case for time travel but there's also stories in there too that I think are are little gems that that the fate of the world doesn't depend on the time travel. There's a great story in there about a woman who time travels in San Francisco so she can get a cheaper apartment. So she lives in the past and she time commutes to the future for her day job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a cute little brilliant, actually kind of brilliant story, character based and everything else. And Bob Lehman, who's an underrated writer who only had a, a handful of stories in fantasy and science fiction, has a has a story called Lube, of all things. That's about this guy that everybody thinks is somewhat dysfunctional, but it turns out that he's a time traveler and he only seems dysfunctional because of whatever reason. But you never know whether he actually time traveled or whatever else. You know, I mean, this, it's just the the fact that he that that's that's part of the premise. So. Well, you know, for me, one of the things, uh, one of my favorite science fiction stories about time travel recently was the John Tidor story. The the guy who came out on and published some stuff on the internet claimed, I'm from the future. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think <laughs> I'm from, you know, in the year 21-something, you know, or 20-something, yeah, where yeah, there would yeah. be all these revolutions. I think that that kind of aspect of time travel and of science fiction in general yeah is overlooked that there's a lot of science fiction that and you know genre fiction that doesn't um necessarily lodge right in mm-hmm. what we think of as the nuts and bolts aspect of it yeah no and and it, it even like jeffrey landis's famous uh, time travel stories like ripples in the dariac sea uh they're thought of as being like you know kind of hard science stories because he's you know he works for nasa and everything but their effects completely depend upon the emotional resonance of the characters and the situations and uh, i'm not even sure in those stories that you could really point and say they're more scientifically correct than the ones by somebody who doesn't have really a science background so it's really the concept yeah now uh do you have another one one of these uh giant uh, slabs planned we uh we are uh, i i guess i can say without giving too much away that we are planning on at some point doing uh, a slab of sci-fi and a slab of fantasy. The fantasy one we would probably do fairly uniquely in that we would we would partner with a major publisher but also do a Kickstarter because what we really want to do is we want to do a three or four volume set of about two to three million words uh, with translations from as many countries as possible and do a truly definitive hundred years of fantasy. And so we really feel that that's the kind of project that can only be done uh, in a kind of a combination of conventional and non-conventional means. And so the Kickstarter would be for, like for translations and whatnot, um, but we would have a traditional publisher for it. So th- those are the projects we have in the works. And uh, they're, they're projects that take many years because there's a lot of research. There's just research to be done on Latin American women writers of, of fantasy fiction uh, who only have one or two stories translated into English right now because you have to figure out what the rest of their body of work is, 
Uh, and there's actually quite a few of them. There's at least a dozen worth checking out. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of research. So those projects are already ongoing because we figure even if we don't wind up doing these big books, we will do something that we can include some of this in. And also it's just like great continuing education for us to make sure we, we keep on our feet. So. Well, this you're doing this too with the Cheeky Frog imprint. So talk a little bit about that. <laughs> that stuff is great. I love those books. Yeah, it's um, we started out as just an ebook publisher for some of my backlist. And then we began to, to publish other people's books. We did the ebook version of Amal and Motar's uh, The Honey Month, and then Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck, which just blew up. I mean, that book has actually sold better than, than some collections from major publishers uh, and you know was on NPR and everything else. And that kind of was what allowed us to then take on the projects we're doing now, which are uh, Finnish fiction, in part also because the Finnish government does a great job of giving out translation grants, which makes it a lot easier. Mm. So we have a, uh, it came from the North, uh, edited by Desirina Boscovich, which is an ebook collection of Finnish uh, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, we have Lena Kron, uh, Kroon's uh, Datura, uh, which is a wonderful short novel that's a follow up to Tanaron, which uh, was a World Fantasy Award finalist in 2005, I believe. And we're actually planning our next project is a omnibus of Lena Kron's, all of her short novels that have been published in English, of which there are many more than you might expect. They just have come out from literary presses, but they're out of print now. Uh, short stories, essays, uh, a couple of poems, some appreciations. We're planning actually a nine, 900-page omnibus, so it's almost impossible to, to not see this thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, you will see this thing, and you will, you will react to it. <laughs> well, I think it's important, too, to have the books, mm -hmm. to have the real books. You are talking yes. about the presence of the, of the Weird and, mm -hmm. and the Time Traveler's Almanac. I mean, having that big book mm -hmm. to hold and to, to look at there. And also, uh, what's nice, too, is in this big book, it's totally unthreatening, unlike many big books, because mm -hmm. it's a book you can just dip into. It's mm -hmm. not a book that you're meant to sit down and read cover to cover. And I think that's really mm -hmm. important. Right. And we, we have worked really hard to strategize, to think, okay, what, what books do we really want to do to emphasize the physical object? Which books does it not matter, uh, even if there is a physical version? You have different ways in which the images uh, kind of communicate with one another. And that's really difficult if what you're doing is turning in text and images to another a designer and a publisher, and then they put it all together. Because there's a lot of different steps that you got to go through. So like a lot of that layering didn't happen until later in the process, and that can be a real pain for a publisher when they're almost getting ready to go to press. So. Uh, so we added things like disruption dragons that were really cool, where where other writers, you know, read parts of the book and disagreed with something or had some other take on it, and in the margin you have their view of it, which which is already beginning to do what I think needs the the, the reader of a writing book needs to understand, which is that the writing book is not supposed to be gospel. It is supposed to provide approaches, some of which will resonate with you and some won't, and so it already begins the the process of destabilizing. Uh, the authority of the book in a, in a meaningful way. So, A writing book is supposed to be a discussion with the would-be writer, yep. not a lecture to right. you. And if you have the discussions within the writing book itself, it yes. uh, advances that format. Yeah, and, and also uh, I have to say that uh, Shared Worlds, the teen writing uh, camp, sci-fi fantasy writing camp uh, that I run every summer or help run, uh, was, was also very instrumental in this because... Uh, we have a no BS policy there. You know, you're dealing with teenagers. Uh, we don't, we don't uh, have any 
any advice that they ever get that's like 20 years out of date stuff or somebody just kind of pontificating about, you know, stuff that was relevant when they were a kid or, you know, I mean, or, or trying to say this is the only one way to write. And so Wonderbook, the philosophy, it kind of came out of that. It's like no BS or no, an attempt at no BS. Or when you think you're going to be providing something that you're not sure of, just say you're not sure. Um, so there's a section on plot and structure where I'm like, hey, all these experts have said this, that, and the other and defined them in different ways. I'm going to basically say that you as a writer are going to define it the way that makes sense to you. Here are some approaches. And I'm not going to try to lay out a definitive definition. I'm going to give you a, a palette to, to work with. Uh, and I think that that's why it's been so successful because people feel like, not like they're being talked down to and, and like this is something that they can personalize. Now, uh, I'd like you to also just talk a little bit about, you know, the writing and the book business is just mm -hmm. being kind of like torn apart slowly, less mm -hmm. uh, less effectively than the music business was. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's in part because uh, the publishers were never able to quite take as full advantage of mm. writers as the music mm -hmm. publishers were able to take from the musicians. They can't, they can't say charge you for a chalet mm -hmm. to write your novel and i guess they mm -hmm. could but yeah it's not like where they could put you in a studio mm -hmm. now that studio is gone it's your computer so right. talk a little bit about where you see the writing business going right well i mean I, I think that that what we want is a balanced ecosystem where all of these things come into play in the, in the right at the right time and for the right books i mean there's books that i will probably self-publish through through kindle and whatnot because that's the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have to keep in mind that if I wanted to, I could self-publish everything I write, and there must be a reason why I don't do that. And I, what I find particularly peculiar is I get a lot of people coming up to me at conventions, and they're like, you know, how did you put out that book? And I'm like, well, you know, I have a publisher. And they're like, oh, publishers still exist? And so I think there's been a lot of misinformation about what is going on, which is to say the major publishers are adapting. And, I think you they're know, doing a pretty darn good job. I, I mean, think they are. I mean, I, the thing that, that, that cracks me up is that, you know, like, for example, there was, I won't name the name, but there was a publisher that I don't consider to be that great. Um, and certainly not somebody who's a visionary talking about traditional publishing and going up against a self-publishing guy. And everyone was pointing to that as an example of how traditional publishing doesn't know what's going on. Well, let me tell you what. The people who are doing the interesting stuff in traditional publishing are not giving interviews about their strategies. <laughs> okay? Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but they are not going to sit down and tell you they're doing it. You know? I mean, because that's not what somebody who has a good strategy usually does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't try to lose their advantage up front. And they don't try to make themselves look self-important or, oh, look what a genius I am. They get on with doing the job. And so there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, storm and fury and whatnot that doesn't really signify much. There's still, you know, there's still clear distribution lines for books. There's still a lot of indie bookstores. Um, in fact, I, when I was in Seattle, uh, James Crossley, who works for Island Books, uh, and I had a great conversation where he talked about how he went to an indie booksellers convention in Seattle and that for the first time, there was a lot of optimism, like things had stabilized mm -hmm. and that things were getting better and that people were working smarter and harder and in the right ways and that people were, they were seeing increases in sales and things like that. So, so you have that uh, and then you have, like I said, some indie publishers and editors with some very creative ideas on how to do this stuff. And then you do have people who come out of self-publishing and are very successful, but I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's hilarious to me because 
people go into self-publishing and they think, if I sell 50,000 copies, I'll be famous, <laughs> if that's their goal, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes writers think, well, I want to make money or I want to be famous. So, you know, there's all kinds of motivations beyond the writing itself. Well, you can self-publish 50,000 copies and no one will know who the hell you are. You just sold 50,000 copies because of the way that certain genres work, certain people will, certain readers will just buy up everything in that genre every month, more or less. Mm -hmm. So you, so, so you have to really think as a writer of, of where you want to position yourself in the marketplace. Are you, do you just want sales, and do you, do you do you care that you're not getting reviewed anywhere or whatever else, or do you want to have a more, you know, where do you want to enter the market? I mean, it does make a difference if you're with a major publisher first. It, it can make a huge difference in how you're perceived in the marketplace, and that can have a huge impact on down the road, not this novel, but, you know, three or four novels down the road. And so I don't think a lot of writers who are seeing this as a goldmine necessarily understand the brand implications of what they're doing. Uh, well, I would agree, and I think, too, there's obviously a lot that you get out of uh, being forced to come up with something that a traditional publisher We'll publish because there's a lot that's there's that's a level of quality that is easy to enjoy as a reader and it's also easy as a reader and maybe a would-be writer to think oh i know what's going on here and i can do that and i have duplicated that but and you may actually produce something that prints out nicely and is spell checked mm -hmm. that said the there's i think an element of collaboration and a lot of mm -hmm. bits that tinkering bits that mm -hmm. don't get put in i'm i i actually am a, a, a strong advocate for self-publishing when it makes sense and the the word of warning i would have is not even necessarily for established writers but for new writers because i think new writers can fall into a trap where publication is so easy now that they don't work on their craft enough mm. and you can you can be a crappy writer and you can sell a decent number of books. So it just depends on what you want out of your writing. If you, if you don't care, that's great. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, but if you do care, you know, you should think about things like if I'm writing a thriller or I'm writing a kind of a mainstream space opera and I can't find a traditional publisher for it, is there a possibility that it just isn't any good? You know, it's different than, say, uh, well, I'm writing in kind of a Kafkaesque mode and kind of surreal stuff, and they don't really seem to know how to market me. I'm getting some good stuff about the, the prose, and I've got some great short story sales, but, but no one seems to know how to place this novel, so they're rejecting it. That's the kind of person that I think benefits from their first book being self-published or going to Kindle or whatever, um, in addition to the person who, again, is just going to kind of be the, the equivalent of yesterday's pulp writer, and they're churning out stuff. And they're they're solely interested in 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 uh, in kind of just again churning it out. Um, interested in story over prose. I mean, those you know, every writer's different. I, I I would not in any way kind of say that one writer should be like more like another kind of writer. But but again, if you're a beginning writer, you, you it, it's just so easy to publish now. I think that there are some real dangers there. Oh, there's an old, uh, uh, one of my favorite works by Stanislaw Lem is a piece called Pericalypsis, mm -hmm. where the, uh, it's a, it's one of, it's a book he reviews in this 
book collection mm-hmm. of reviews. Mm-hmm. And in the, the pericalypsis, the premise is, is that the apocalypse has already come to pass. That's mm-hmm. why it's the pericalypse. Mm-hmm. And the reason the apocalypse has come to pass is because so many books have mm-hmm. been published <laughs> that the seven books that would save the world could no more be found than the seven grains of sand in the uh-huh. Sahara. So the author of Pericalypsis proposes paying people not to create. <laughs> and I think that we're, we may be approaching the point of Pericalypsis uh, rapidly, or we may have already passed it. Well, I mean, I like the idea that of living in a culture where everyone tells stories. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, I was caught up for jury duty and I wasn't selected, but we, you know, we had a conversation in the hallway with some of the potential jurors because you have to state your profession and everything. And like, oh, you're a writer. And, and a couple of them said, oh, yeah, yeah, my my uh, my husband and my, my two children and my grandmother all have books coming out on Kindle. And, you know, they're, they're not thinking of publishing in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they may just be selling it to friends or whatever, and, and, and that's, that's fine. But, but you're right that there is a white noise occurring uh, and on several levels. And so you get self-published writers who get really irritated because they're not getting reviewed in the New York Times and, uh, and, and at the same time rail against traditional publishing as if traditional publishing has no worth. Uh, and then you have traditional publishing people who rail at the self-publishing world and, and, and say you're all awful and blah, 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 blah. And uh, the truth is, is, is um, there's some is good to some, be found everywhere. There's good to be. It's just finding it. And so the most yeah. hilarious thing to me is that we'll probably get to a point where gatekeepers who resemble editors come back into vogue in the self-publishing world just to guide readers <laughs> to the stuff that doesn't suck. So it's kind of be like the same system. You can't get rid of every hierarchy and expect to to be able to make your your way through this bewildering kind of you know snowfall of books. We need to invent AIs who can read the books <laughs> fast enough and, and give them uh, qualified. Well, what scares me is that I think Amazon's developing technology where, or they already can do this, where they can chart where the reader's interest flags on a Kindle book. I do not want to ever know <laughs> that information. I'm sorry. Some things man uh, was not meant to know. No. <laughs> Jeff, uh, I'd like you to talk. You know, you're a noted author. You've got lots of books. We've been talking about ebooks. I'm wondering if you've thought about, you know, w- branching out into ra- perhaps writing the screenplay for your mm. for your novels. Yeah, screenplays. I've tried a couple in the past, and it just doesn't seem to be something I have a real aptitude for. Uh, I think I would have to probably take a running start by just doing some stuff not connected to adapting my existing work, like try to write a couple of one-act plays or something and go from there. Uh, but for some reason, I just um, it just isn't a form that really appeals to me that much. And I feel like I should leave it to the experts, really. <laughs> I've been speaking with Jeff Vandermeer. Forthcoming, edited by Jeff Vandermeer and his wife, Anne, is the Time Traveler's Almanac. Thank you for speaking with me, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.